Welcome to The Weekly. I'm Susan Swain. That puts him at 237 electoral votes out of the 270 needed to win the election. The winner is the person who gets more votes when all the votes are counted in the states that add up to 270. Pennsylvania has 20 electoral college votes, as you see, so it could tip either man uh, over that 270 target that they need to hit. The sounds of election night 2020. Wilfred Codrington, assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, For the third time in 20 years now, election night emerged as a battle over electoral college outcomes. Last week, we heard the case for continuing the electoral college. After watching election night, we'd like to hear your thoughts on how the electoral college plays out for Americans. Well, I think what's becoming patently obvious is that it doesn't play out well. Uh, We find ourselves in a uh, situation where we have all eyes on a handful of states. And where we know um, that the, the difference between political support, at least as reflected by the votes throughout the country, is uh, fairly vast, we don't know how the result of this election is going to turn out. So we have um, a system in place which uh, requires that we win 270 votes as opposed uh, to the many votes of the 300 uh, million or so Americans out there. Um, And and, um, in this time specifically, um, we're having to make um, put all eyes on um, just whatever happens. We're making a gamble that all of uh, what's going on in Pennsylvania and Arizona, these just few states that nothing can go wrong because the entire presidency relies on it. Well, residents of those small states say that it gives them an equal voice to those who live in larger areas. Do they have a point? No, actually, it gives them an outsized voice. Um, the, uh, that, that's the very nature of the Electoral College, because the way that the Electoral College works is it, it is not proportional. So, um, for example, um, California, which has, you know, um, millions and millions of residents, um, they get about um, the, the, the average voter or a person in, um, um, in California only um, has the voting power of uh, about one quarter of a person in Wyoming. And that's because of the vast difference in their size, right? We, so we allocate these electors according to the number of representatives and senators for each state. And that inherently gives an outside advantage to states that are smaller because they get a boost um, for two senators. And it also just depends on what the makeup of any particular state is um, and, and to determine what their role is going to be. So we focus on a handful of states all the time, and it's not because they are more representative. It's not because they have ever been treated unequally. It is just because the Electoral College um, wants to winnow down elections into the fewest number of states And that determines the outcome of someone who is elected to represent the entire country. Another argument that we have heard is that those handful of states do change from cycle to cycle. And we've seen that over the past couple of cycles. And along with those changes, their importance in the vote counts changes and the attention that they get from 
campaign strategies, candidate attention, and dollars all change. What would you say to that? Sure. The, 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 the swing states or battleground states change over time. But that, that, I think that's pretty irrelevant. It, you, your importance in this country shouldn't be based on happenstance. It should be based on your participation in this country. And everybody should have equal participation in the country. So what we now see is that, yeah, some states may change over time. So now we're looking at Arizona in a way we haven't, or we're looking in Georgia in a way we haven't. But, you know, most of the states are just sitting on the sidelines. We have upwards of 70% of the country that is ignored and candidates won't go to a bunch of these states unless they're just raising money um and and that is that is problematic it's problematic because it reduces the incentives for people to participate in democracy because they know that their vote is going to count much less and it's going to be unimportant in that important race for the presidency um it it creates perverse incentives for candidates to govern in the interest of a handful of places. So, for example, presidents, incumbent presidents looking forward towards reelection have every incentive to govern in a way that's going to give benefits to swing states. It might exempt Florida from an environmental regulation while everybody else is stuck with that regulation. We see that happen all the time. And and it just means really that a ton of money is going to go into just a handful of states. The attention is going to go to a handful of states. And we're all going to be relying on a handful of states, hoping that things don't go disastrously wrong. I wanted to tell folks that in addition to teaching at Brooklyn Law School, you've also been uh, for a while now a fellow at the Brennan Law Center, and you've been working on electoral college reform, and they have very specific positions. They call for the abolishment of it, or if not the abolishment, they would like to see a, the, an outcome of a national popular vote compact, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But you've in that role, you have been writing, thinking, speaking about the electoral college quite a bit over the past few years. And I want to go back Back to the founding fathers debate over the Electoral College, because you contend uh, in, in what I've read that the orange of an, origins of it was really a play to the southern states and their interest in preserving the institution of slavery. Would you talk a little bit more about that thesis? Sure. Yeah. So the idea is that the Electoral College has a, a, a large, a large force behind the Electoral College was slavery and racial subjugation. Um, And I don't contend that slavery and racism was the only reason. Of course not. The framers were afraid of um, potential violation of separation of powers, for example, if Congress were to choose it. Uh, The framers were apparently afraid that there wasn't um, there wasn't um, information accessible about the candidate. So they had other reasons. But um, they also were very thoughtful about slavery and how this could help preserve or at least prevent um, the national government from uh, interfering with the institution of slavery. And the way we know this is the way that things played out in, at, the, at the Constitutional Convention. Um, the first time the idea of presidential electors was introduced, it was rejected resoundingly. 
the first time the Connecticut Compromise, which was what gave us a bicameral legislator, um, and, and it sort of gave each state equal representation in the Senate, and um, the, the House of Representatives was supposed to be chosen on a proportional basis. The first time that was introduced, it was rejected resoundingly. And then after that, you had uh, the pernicious compromise, the three-fifths compromise. And once you had that, and the, and the compromise was that 60% of all those disempowered, disenfranchised, disrespected people who were treated as property for all other reasons, slaves, most of whom resided in the South, 60% of them were going to count towards a state's population uh, in Congress. And then after that, you get the agreement about how Congress is going to be structured. So you know that you're going to have this baked-in advantage if you have slaves, an advantage that's going to incentivize you to increase the number of slaves that you have because that increases your power in Congress. And then on top of that, that formula, uh, you had the formula for the Electoral College. And that's how we know the formula today. Of course, we don't have the three-fifths compromise anymore because uh, slavery was abolished. But um, it very much figured into the creation of the Electoral College. And in fact, it, it influenced the trajectory of our history. Um, it's very notable that for the first um, bunch of years, four of the five first presidents were slaveholding Virginians. They were choosing members of their cabinets and the Supreme Court, all to influence policy, all of whom had a very... Um, specific view about slavery. Um, so slavery played very prominently in all of this. And um, I think that this has been downplayed as people looked at history. And it's important now that we're looking at the role of race in society and reckoning with um, the sort of all of the things that amount to injustices towards people of color and black people in particular, that these sorts of things are uncovered and discussed. Last week, we spoke with Hans von Spakovsky, who is with the Heritage Foundation and also a constitutional scholar. And we talked to him about this very issue, the genesis and the interest of southern states. Here's what he had to say on this. Yeah, that is just factually and historically completely wrong. I mean, there wasn't any need to think about preserving slavery because at the time of the Constitutional Convention, slavery was practiced in every single state. Uh, Moreover, uh, if you look at the voting on uh, the Electoral College system, you'll find that actually all of the southern states, ex- with the exception of Virginia, actually voted against it, um, whereas the northern states were in favor. You would have thought it would be the, the other way around. And and finally, uh, if you actually look at the, I think, the 1790 census, uh, the two largest slave-owning states, uh, north and south of the Mason-Dixon line were Virginia and New York. If you took out all of the slave uh, uh, populated slaves, the slaves out of the populations of both states, Virginia was still a larger state population-wise than New York. So, just from a historical standpoint, uh, there's no there, there's no facts to support that contention. Response. Yeah. So there are just a number of inaccuracies in the in, in mis. Um, 
and sort of misstatements in what he said. First off, if you look at the 1790 uh, census, it was uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania that were the largest ones. And Virginia and Pennsylvania had about equal free populations, except Virginia had 300,000 slaves. And what happened there was that um, when you actually allocated the electoral votes, Virginia ended up getting 21 and Pennsylvania ended up getting 15. So that was wrong in the first instance. Second, if you look at the order in which the people voted about um, um, the, the three deals that I spoke about, you'd find first that the Electoral College and the idea of electors was rejected. So was the compromise. And then you finally got the acceptance of the three-fifths. And then they accepted the other two, which created the formation. And in pivotal, a pivotal state on that was actually North Carolina, which changed its vote from the first time around to accept the agreement then. Um, to the extent that you had Northerners uh, uh, accepting this, I mean, that's not discrediting anything. It's not to say that Northerners had clean hands in this at all. Obviously, they did not. They had a, a many of them had more of an interest in um, uh, building a strong federal government and, and uh, that could regulate the economy and um, sort of building up a defense, a strong sort of uh, defense system. So but the fact that they supported this doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that this wasn't in the South's interest. The South um, w- members of the Southern delegations were going to walk out of the convention if anything was touched in slavery. And slavery figured prominently in more than just the Electoral College. So there were a lot of accommodations that the North made towards members of the, the Southern delegations. Um, I don't. I, I can't even recall some of the other things that he said, but um, many of those things were untrue, unfounded. You could look at the record and you can see that the three-fifths compromise was agreed upon on July 13th. And then after that, on July 16th, you got the Connecticut compromise. And well after that, you got the electoral college system. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess, my response. Let me move to our current age. In a 2019 essay for The Atlantic, you wrote that critics of the Electoral College need to add disempowerment of black voters to the added to the list of concerns because it is core to what the Electoral College is and what it has always been. I found a response to to your article in a, a publication called Patriot Post. They wrote, it's a long leap of faith to claim that a system that recently awarded two terms to a president of color systematically disenfranchises a particular race of Americans. It's true that states in the Deep South, which have among the highest proportion of black voters, tend to vote Republican. But other states outside that region also have high minority numbers, such as those along the mid-Atlantic region between Delaware and North Carolina, and have been trending Democrat. And they add, Codrington also seems to assume, of course, that blacks should reflexively vote for Democrats. Can I engage you in a conversation about that? Sure. Um, I don't assume anything I'm, I, about black voting behavior. I, I'm, I'm assuming what it is, and it shows. Um, so what I'm saying is when you look at black people as a collective, and you can do that a little easier than you can do with other uh, groups of minorities, because most black people have a common um, connection here, having been descendants of slaves and sort of grown up here. So it is not coming from a bunch of different countries more recently it's people who have uh, long roots here so they ha- there are similarities um and and even if they disagree on lots of issues they often agree on how they vote because there is a party that thinks about race and, and at least addresses it and that's the democratic party 
street. So I'm not saying how they should vote. I'm saying how they do vote. Um, also, the Electoral College, um, the fact it, 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 some places are trending um, towards Democrat. I mean, I, again, that doesn't undermine my statement, which is that they have not. And the only state that actually has consistently voted for Democrat over a period that has a large black population is Maryland. The rest, when you look at Georgia, when you look at South Carolina, when you look at North Carolina, they frequently have not. And, and it, it is an aberration if any of those are in play. And again, the fact that they're just in play right now is happenstance, but that doesn't eliminate their long history that have supported um, really um, utterly racist candidates throughout history. So I, I'm just talking about the sort of recent history, but, you know, and, and, and the other part of this is that I, I just, I, I can't um, for the life of me see um, how people don't look into some of these facts. And the fact is, most of the small states that get a boost are white, whiter than the uh, sort of average, um, the average, the demography of the country. Um, So um, eight of the 10 smallest states that get the Senate boost, they are much whiter. larger states, I mean, because of the, a lot of this is, because, I mean, most of this is because of the way the winner-take-all system works, right? Um, and the idea is that if you are in a place where most people don't agree with you, like in the South, then your your vote's going to be wasted. It's not going to count as much because you have a winner-take-all system. Um, and uh, that that's what we see. Um, I, I don't, um, I don't presume that black people should vote a certain way. I, I see how they do vote, um, and I see that that vote doesn't count for much where they are and where they're concentrated. And it, I, I yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure if there was another statement in there to comment to, um, but I'm happy to discuss more. Well, I'd like to move to remedies. If the Electoral College fails voters or fails a, a, a segment of, of voters in states or by population, there are a couple of remedies. One is changing the way it works, and one is, of course, eliminating it. Over time, Congress has apparently seen as many as 700 Electoral College reform proposals, which would require constitutional amendment. How far have any of them ever gotten over the years, and why have they not gotten any farther? Yeah, so every time we tried to look at this, there was a problem, and not coincidentally, um, race played very prominently. And again, I'll, I'll start, um, I'll give two clear examples, one early on and one later. Early on, and after the election of 1800, when, um, you know, there was a tie between Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson, and it almost resulted in this disaster, um, breaking apart the system, they, um, they ended up Congress ended up um, um, putting out an amendment to reform the Electoral College. That's how we got the 12th Amendment. Um, But when they were considering this, um, they raised, uh, there's a Massachusetts congressman who raised um, a direct election for the presidency, and it was laughed off the stage. And the reason was they made it very clear that the, the reason was that there were a number of slave states that benefited from um, the three-fifths compromise in the Electoral College. It added, um, um, I believe, 21 extra um, electoral votes um, for the the president that all helped slave states. So when you had it early on, when a direct election could have been on the table, it was just laughed off. Um, And then 
Uh, more recently, if you look in 1969, 1970, um, the Electoral College resolution that was proposed made it out of the House with the requisite two-thirds majority that you need to get an uh, amendment. And then when it went to the Senate, it was blocked. It was blocked um, by a filibuster um, that was supported by the Southern ranks, um, anchored by Strom Thurmond. And he knew that was because of exactly what I said about the concentration of black people in the South and how that would give them power in a place in the federal elections where they had typically just not had power. So when, when we talk about this, it's, it's never race is never far from the conversation. It's either there implicitly or it's there explicitly. And, and that's what happens. You have a book coming out next year called The People's Constitution, which details how the Constitution has been shaped over the generations through amendment process. Do you anticipate that this year's election will resurrect the effort legislatively to amend the Constitution regarding the Electoral College? You know, I mean, the way that it, the, the numbers are playing out, it doesn't look like it's going to be on the short-term agenda, and, and, and we don't make any projections about the sort of um, how quickly Americans are going to be sort of spurred to change the Constitution. But um, I do think that um, certainly if um, President Trump is reelected um, with an Electoral College win but uh, losing the popular vote, people – that will be the third time that this will have happened in recent history. Democrats will have won um, the popular vote seven times out of the eight last elections. And that will be problematic. Um, I think people will be much more interested in it than certainly as a response. I still think that um, the ground is being laid now in other ways, um, but it is it is a heavy lift to amend the Constitution. As I said, you need super majorities in Congress and in the state legislators to get it passed and adopted and ratified. Um, so, um, you know, I, 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 I for me, I, I make the clear connection between what I'm seeing right now, the level of uncertainty about the leader of our country um, despite knowing that Joe Biden leads by three and a half million votes at this point, and it is very likely to be even more than that. The fact that we're waiting all this time, despite knowing these facts, that the, pr- President Trump does not have the support of the majority of the electorate is problematic. And that makes me see the direct tie. Um, I hope the American people do see this and, and see a direct tie and start pushing for this. As an alternative, you and also the Brennan Center, where you are an academic fellow, also support the concept of the National Popular Vote Compact, an agreement among states to award their electoral votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, which is an end run around the Electoral College without needing a constitutional amendment. As of this election year, 14 states in Washington, D.C., representing 187 Electoral College votes, had adopted legislation to join the compact. And uh, this week, Colorado became the first state in which voters got their own chance to decide directly about whether or not they should be part of the compact. And it it looks as though, last I checked the numbers, that the Colorado voters were saying yes. What does this mean uh, about the argument for the National Popular Vote Compact? Yeah, so I just want to make a little tweak on your language to say that it's in an end run around the Electoral College. 
it's hard to be an end run around the Electoral College if you depend on the Electoral College to work. So um, this is uh, a way to work within the current system, the current Electoral College, and to use it in a way that will also give effect to the majority will. Um, So it ensures that the popular vote winner will always be the Electoral College winner. Um, I think the fact that, um, you, you know, the Colorado legislator had passed legislation earlier to join the compact and then it was put up um, to the voters um, whether they were going to vote it up and down. It looks like, as you said correctly, it looks like that they're going to vote it up. I think that's a good sign. It's a good omen. Um, it means that we have a more purple state, if we want to um, call it that, that is supporting this. And it creates um, it's, it's a path that needs to be taken if this is to go further. So at this point, it is largely the blue states, the safe Democratic states that have been pushing for this reform with Colorado in the, in the on the sort of map, if you will. Um, that means that at least it, it looks like People in states like that will can embrace this. Um, and, you know, it, on, on the one hand, you might think of states like Colorado, as you said, as um, pushing against it because uh, it's not in their interest, that they get more attention um, from presidential campaigns because they're more competitive and what have you. Um, but on the other hand, it shows a real reflection, deep um, thought about what political equality means and what it means to be a part of a country, one nation, and, and that we should all have an equal role in choosing the one person who's uh, chosen to represent us all. So I look forward to where um, the, the national popular vote goes next to think about how they think about um, the places that are the purple places um, where you can win, to think about how places that are even red may feel ignored because nobody is coming to see them. And the idea is that if you have a national popular vote, presidential candidates are going to come to where they need to win votes, irrespective of where they are, trying to draw up their base and encouraging people to participate as opposed to doing what they do now, going to a handful of states and discouraging people from engaging. Just a few more minutes in our conversation. I wanted to have you listen to the former Speaker of the House of Colorado, Frank McNulty, one of the opponents of the national popular vote. So even if it does prevail in Colorado, other states may hear arguments similar to this. Let's listen. If Proposition 113 passes, a candidate for president doesn't even need to be on the Colorado ballot in order to get Colorado's votes for president. And we think that's just flat out wrong. It disenfranchises Coloradans, makes our vote absolutely worthless if we can't even vote on who might be the next president of the United States. What would you say to that? Um, I I don't agree with it at all. Um, First off, it doesn't disenfranchise anybody. It it would... um, it, they still participate in the in the process of choosing the president, and the idea is that they are um, they are putting forth their their ideas of solidarity with the rest of the country. It, I, I don't. I, I I think that these become red herrings. You're not going to ever come see us. You're not going to be on our ballots. It's not. I don't know any presidential campaign that plays anything like that. And, and in fact, I, it, it just 
it doesn't make sense. These are scare tactics to try to get people to uh, be afraid of what um, the majority actually wants. And, and really, we need to put this all in context. Right now, again, as I said, we've had um, two losers of the popular vote become president. They have now put more than half of the appointed more than half of the Supreme Court. We also have a Senate that is extremely unrepresentative of the rest of the country. So what we are now, we're just rolling towards more minority rule. And it's one thing to have um, systems and apparatus in place to uh, act as counter-majoritarian sort of checks to ensure that minority um, rights are respected. It's quite another to engage and to encourage a system where minority rule becomes a norm. That is not democracy. Um, so I, I, I just wholly reject the arguments like that. And I hope that people who are uh, come in counter with the idea of the national popular vote will actually do their research and, deep, and think deeply about this and not just accept um, the talking points of people who are interested in maintaining the status quo. This week, as people are watching the battle over those uh, 270 electoral college votes, people on both sides of this issue, I'm sure, will be thinking about their position on the electoral college. So as I close with you here, I wanted to pivot to uh, the whole question of the election this week. We'll know more about who voted as there's time to dissect the data from the states over the next weeks and months. But on a top line basis, what was your reaction to the sheer volume of voter participation in this week's election? You know, it was it was kind of heartening. It, it was um, to see the number of people engaged in democracy increase over time and increase over the last four years. And to do so during this health pandemic where we're all sort of on locked up, haven't seen a bunch of people who we know and care about and to engage in that way is actually quite heartening. Um, I wish it were easier, and I wish that people felt that they had incentives to participate um, at, at increasing levels. And, you know, I think um, uh, that just kind of takes me back to this idea. The Electoral College, I think, does not give that incentive. What we see is that the states where the Electoral College determines the outcome, the the um, the participation and the um, the voter turnout is higher than it is in other states. So I, I just think that it is heartening that this is all happening. I, I'm, I'm very happy that there is increased engagement. I think we can do more um, to, to reform our system, to encourage more participation, greater participation. And I think um, getting rid of the Electoral College in the long term and um, working within the national popular vote system, accepting that in the short term are the best, some of the best ways at least to do that. And because we like nonfiction books here at C-SPAN, I want to close by asking you to tell us more about your book, The People's Constitution. When will it be available and what will readers get? Sure. The People's Constitution, my co-author and I are working on our edits right now. So the hope is that we'll have it out sort of mid next year. Um, our publisher is the New Press. And what they'll be reading is an engaging uh, narrative history about how people have changed our Constitution over time. They'll learn that the Constitution did not stop 
when it was adopted, but it continued to develop as the framers of the Constitution intended it to. Um, so in a few periods, it became more democratic, more inclusive, and more protective of rights because we've had a more diverse and more enlightened set of framers that have come and taken up the mantle to make sure that it, it reflects the promise of the preamble um, and to make this union a more perfect union. So uh, we're working on that. Um, look out for it in 2021, and um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be happy to talk about it then. We will let you get back to your editing. I know what a process that is. Wilfred Codrington, Assistant Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School and a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice, thank you very much for being part of C-SPAN's The Weekly. Thank you so much, Susan. Have a great day.